Okay, if you were with us this morning, you'll know that already today uh, that we've looked at the cross. Well, the question I want us to consider tonight together is simply this. What now? Now, we have considered today and seen that Jesus Christ has died a once and for all atoning death for sin. So in light of that, what now? How then are we to live in light of what has happened, what Christ has done for us? What is our response to be to Jesus' death and to what we saw together this morning? Well, to answer that, what I want us to do tonight is really to retrace our steps, in a sense, actually, to go back to the ground around Calvary. You see, there were people gathered around Jesus when he died, weren't there? There were people there at the cross. And how did they react to his death? What was the first response to Jesus' crucifixion, and I suppose most crucially, what is it that we as a congregation can learn from that, these first, these initial responses to Christ's death? What can we learn from that? Well, really, the first thing that I want us to think about this evening is the frivolity of the soldiers. That's our first heading, the frivolity of the soldiers. I'm right in saying, aren't I, that with this here tonight, we are at the very nucleus of John's passion account, aren't we, this evening? It was just a moment ago that Jesus had a long, sturdy nails driven into his feet and driven into his hands. And just a moment ago... Uh, that a sign was lifted above his head, placed there declaring him to be the king of the Jews. Like We are in the heart of the matter. But I think what we should do here, what we need to do, is notice that there are actually four other men in this crucifixion scene. Because John tells us about four soldiers here. Four Roman soldiers. What do we call them? Four executioners that are present on Calvary Hill. And these are men who have just, this moment, stripped Jesus and are dividing up, shearing up his clothes amongst them. You see the four other men. Now, I think perhaps the best way to envisage the scene is to think about five separate items of clothing. Four soldiers, five items of clothing. They all get a bit each. One soldier gets Jesus' belt. One soldier gets the sandals. One soldier gets the headpiece. One soldier gets the outer garment. But you see the problem. There's a fifth garment. There's four soldiers. There's a fifth garment. The main robe, actually. And it's something that cannot be divided and split up. So do you see the problem? How are these men going to decide which of them? There's four. There's this this one thing remaining. Who's going to get it? How do they resolve this? They cast lots. Or I'll put it more crudely than that. They gamble for our Lord's clothes. 
time, would you consider what it is we're learning and what it is that we're seeing before us just now? Do you consider with me just how abhorrent this scene is? What is this? It's like little boys, isn't it? It's like little kids. And what are they doing at the cross? They're playing games. Isn't that what we're seeing here? That, that as the Son of God, as he hangs above these Roman soldiers in his very shadow, what are they doing? These men, they are, they are having a laugh with each other. They're casting dice. They are joking about. Like, aren't you with me when I say to you that the levity here is, is all wrong and the, it's just, the frivolity here is disgusting, isn't it? And yet I think we have to be honest with ourselves. Surely that attitude is, is more than familiar to you and me. I mean, we're Presbyterians. And so we are absolutely adept at faux piety. Aren't we? Like even this morning. Uh, we are expert at just pressing the communion button. Aren't we? And then suddenly at the supper, the sort of veil of almost full sort of solemnity descends over us. And there's a seriousness that we switch on, some of us, to, to the communion. But we've got to be honest with ourselves. By the time we got home, what's happening? We're laughing, we're joking. We're not even giving these gospel things much of a second thought, are we? Well, is it not time that we as a congregation got utterly deadly serious about the matters of the gospel. Isn't it time, isn't it time even tonight that, that you and I actually gave some serious assessment to how we are walking with Christ in our lives? Because I'm going to ask you this. What did this scene here in John 19 mean for your Lord? Think about it. That they gambled for his clothes What did it mean for Jesus? It meant most likely at this point, our Lord was naked. And you must understand that unlike for the Romans, for a Jew, that was an atrocious thing. That sort of public nakedness was an awful, awful thing. Do you see that upon the cross at Calvary, your Lord was shamed? He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. And why? All that on the day of judgment, you and I before all of the world wouldn't need to bear the public shame of our own sin. Do you see it? Doesn't that make us take the things of the Christian faith a little more seriously than we do? We see the frivolity of the soldiers. A second thing that we notice here, a second response that we must pay attention to here, is the relationship between Mary and John. That's our second thing we have to to grapple with here, the relationship between Mary and John. So, you see what happens in the text. No sooner has John dealt with 
one group of people, these soldiers, he kind of moves over a bit at Calvary, and he moves over to the other group of people here. Now, let's be very careful. Please do not think in any way at all that John contradicts the other gospel accounts. And do you see what I mean by that? The other gospel accounts, they say that this group of people looked on at Calvary from afar. Don't they say that? All of the synoptics give us that detail. Here, do you notice, these people that we're dealing with, they're right up close. They're right. Jesus is able to speak to these people. And I don't think that's a contradiction because, of course, Jesus has been on the cross for hours. There's been a lot of Activity, passing by, a lot of toing and throwing, coming and going. It's not a contradiction, but I do think you and I need to be very clear about who it is that's in this second group. So a minute ago, there was five what? A minute ago, what was there? There was five items of clothing. Here, think of this group as five individuals. Let me spell it out for you. You have John, the, the, the author of this book. He's in this group. Okay, you've got John. Then you have four women standing there. So you have, who have you got? Did you notice? You have Mary, the mother of the Lord. You have her sister. She's there. Imagine the grief. You have Mary, the, the wife of Clopas, she is there, and you have Mary Magdalene. You have five individuals. But ultimately, is it not the words that Jesus says to this group that should be the focus of our attention? Here's what I would ask you to do as a congregation. Would you look with me to verse 26? What does Jesus say? You found verse 26? Consider the, consider the scene. Jesus looks. He is hanging on the cross. And he looks, first of all, to his mother. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that, Luke? Jesus, knowing he's about to die, look to his mother. And he says, To Mary, off John, what does he say? Woman, here is your son. Okay, that's the first half of this. Then look to see what he says next. Now, Jesus, on the cross, you, you see it, he turns his head. And he now looks to John, this, this man who's followed him, this man he loves so much. What does he say to John? He says, to John of Mary, and here is your mother. Now, I'm asking you, do you see what Jesus is doing? It's, it's, it's worth considering. He is providing for his mum. Isn't he doing that? I mean, by this stage, Mary's actually quite advanced in years. And her husband, most likely, is long dead. And who would be looking after her? Her eldest. And he's on the cross and about to die. And the rest of the siblings are unsympathetic. So do you see what's going to happen here? In the aftermath of Jesus' death, Mary's going to be left really exposed. An elderly woman... In Palestine, in the first century, this woman is going to be incredibly vulnerable. So what does Jesus do? He, from the cross, he cares for, provides for his mum. And surely we just pause, just for a minute as a congregation. 
And don't we together absolutely marvel at the love of Jesus? Please take a step back and think about the spiritual realities at this moment. What's happening here? The cross. Jesus is bearing on his shoulders all of your sin. Bearing at that moment all of your wickedness, all of the wickedness of all of his people throughout the centuries, all of that sin upon him. He's bearing the wrath of Almighty God in his body at that moment. And what? Such is his love that he can still at that very moment care for one isolated elderly woman. That's incredible. What manner of love is this? That surely in Mary and John we have here a lesson for London City Presbyterian Church. Do you see what the lesson is? Surely we see that our response to the cross, it must be to do as they do. Our response to the cross must be to love each other, that we see in them that we in here are are to be a family. You see, a family of faith. I wonder, did you notice this little detail here? Nowhere in this portion of scripture is either Mary nor John mentioned by name. Nowhere. Do you notice that? Mary is either called, have a look, she's either called the mother of Jesus or she's called dear woman. She's not referred to by name and neither is John. John is referred to simply as the beloved disciple. Do you see what it is? They stand as a representation, representatives. It's almost that Jesus is speaking through Mary, through John. He's speaking to his people that would come after. He's speaking to you. And what is he saying? He's saying, love one another. He's saying, be a a family of faith. Do as these people are doing. So, I'm going to bring this to you right now into your life. I want to ask you this. Do you properly and truly regard the people in this room as your very family? Like, I know you, you. You would say to me, yes. And I know intellectually and I know theologically we assent to that idea that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, do you believe it and do you live it? Is it real to you that we are a family or is it not? Like, are you willing to love sacrificially as John would have had to do taking Mary into his house? Like, are you willing to give these people here your time and your money and your affections are you willing to love humbly as Mary would have had to have done wouldn't she accepting this help from John are you willing to love like that like are you willing actually to serve these people the people around you actually serve them willing to open up your life to these people are you Because what we see throughout scripture from beginning to end is that God does not only desire that we be united in doctrine. He desires that. But he desires more. He desires that we are united in our relationships as as well. Are we willing to do that, friends? 
Are you willing to do that? Because what is it that Paul tells us? What does he say? He says, love one another. What sort of love does he talk about? Love one another with brotherly love, with family love. We, in light of the cross, are to be a real family of faith. So we see the frivolity of the soldiers and we see this beautiful relationship between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, the beloved disciple. A third thing that we notice here is the legalism of the Jews. The legalism of the Jews. Okay, you know this story very well, I'm sure. You know that throughout the Passion account, the Jewish authorities have played a very prominent role. They've been busy, haven't they? Busy in their attempts to have Jesus arrested. Busy in their attempts eh, to have him sentenced to death. That doesn't change in Jesus' actual death. Because you, you probably saw it. To the group of soldiers, we've seen them. To this group of women, John also adds another concerned group. These Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish authorities. So I, I ask you this, what, I've said that they're a concerned group of authorities. What is it that they are concerned about? Well, the tradition was uh, in the first century that the Romans, they would leave a crucified body, they would leave it up upon the cross overnight. And maybe if you're lazy... <laughs> Uh, you see it from their point of view. Uh, this way, if they left the body on the cross, they didn't have to go to the effort of now going to try and, and kill the person quickly. They could just leave the crucified person up there overnight. The vultures would have their pay. Now, do you, do you see it? That that is absolutely unacceptable to these Jewish authorities. Why? Deuteronomy chapter 21. God says to his people, you must, if there's a body on a tree, the body has got to be taken down, got to be buried the same day. And these Jewish authorities, they say, well, wait a minute. This is especially pertinent here with Jesus. Why? Because the next day is the Sabbath. The next day is the Passover special Sabbath. You see their concern? What do they do? They go to Pilate. They knock on Pilate's door and the Jews ask that Jesus' legs be broken to hasten his death. And they ask that his body be taken down. I wonder what you think of that. I want you to see that it is utterly appalling. Because we could say, well, uh, I mean, cut them some slack. They're just trying to obey the law, aren't they? They're just, I mean, trying to get Jesus' body taken down from the guy. I mean, it doesn't seem that bad. They're just trying to obey the law. But I'm saying to you, don't you see what it is? I mean, it is dry, unadulterated, Legalism. Is it not? Isn't it? It is a religion displayed 
completely absent of Christ Jesus, isn't it? I mean, think about these men. You, you might say to me, yes, but they're trying to keep the Sabbath day. But I would say yes, but without any regard for the Lord of the Sabbath who hangs in their midst. And you might say, but they're just trying to keep the law. But surely it is without any concern for the one, the very one the law existed to point them to. The one who in their midst at that very minute was actually fifth. Filling the law. Do you see? You begin to see how appalling it is. It is. It is a religion that is Christ discarding. It is a Christless religion. But lest we be too judgmental, surely we have to hold up our hands in this room and accept our own culpability. Because how often it is in our religious affairs that we do the same thing. That we overlook and we sideline Christ even in our own religious affairs. I mean the elders of this church, the deacons of this church, don't we do this? We try and shepherd the flock and we look after the material life of this congregation and all too often it is without reference to Jesus. And the parents in here, aren't we guilty again of exactly the same thing? We're like we, we try and teach our children to be good and we try and teach our children to behave but without properly rooting them in the, the great truths and principles of the gospel. In fact, who here would dare suggest that, that, that this isn't actually endemic in our congregation? What do we do? We, we, we are concerned with our own interpretation of the laws and traditions and rules and so forth. We are not concerned at all enough with the Lord Jesus Christ that stands in the center of our faith. Isn't it true? Friends, let me suggest... What God is showing you in these verses here is the real problem of legalism. Because what did the Jews want to happen? What does legalism always want to happen? They wanted the Lord Jesus Christ taken out of sight. That's the goal of legalism. Let's flee from that. Let's respond to what we saw this morning by doing what? By having Jesus at the center of our lives, the center of our parenting, the center of how we shepherd the flock, the center of everything in our lives. And then I'm going to close with this. So we've seen the soldiers, one group of soldiers, and how they respond. What do we see next? Group of women. And John, and how they responded to the cross. Then, in turn, we saw the Pharisees and their legalistic outlook. There's a last one, and it's the witness of the author. There's a surprise in store in John 19, isn't there? It's a real shock and surprise, because the soldiers have now been ordered by Pilate to go to Jesus and to break his legs. You see why that was? They break his legs to stop him being able to lift himself up upon the cross. 
He suffocates this way. They get to Jesus, ready to do this, and they are shocked by what they see. Because what do they see? He's already dead. He is already our Lord. At this moment here, he hangs lifeless upon the cross. What do they do? Do they just move on? They don't. John records another detail. The soldiers at this point, they pierce with a spear the side of Jesus. Presumably, I think, puncturing the heart. Because what happens? You see? They pierce his side and outflows this, this outpouring of water and blood. I wonder, do you see what it is that the author is saying to you in recording that detail? Why is why does he record the fact that this flow of blood and water comes out? Do you see what he's doing? He's underlining for you the humanity of Jesus. Isn't, he? Isn't that what this is about? Flow of blood, a flow of water. He's saying, look, the cross. Here is, here is a man who can save men because why he is God become man. How did you begin the reading? What did you read earlier on at the beginning? You see what John did? At the beginning, what was it? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And how does he end? That flesh was pierced. Why? So that we can make our dwelling with him. All along tonight, we've been concerned with responses to the cross. So I'm asking you, do you see what the fourth response is? Do you see it in the text? What is the fourth response? Do you see it? Have a look at verse 35. What's the response? What does John go on to say, verse 35? He says, He who has borne witness, he has seen these things. Sorry, he who saw it has borne witness. He's borne witness. So do you see the response? In light of what has happened at Calvary, what has John gone and done? He sees the death of Jesus and he goes and he writes what you have in front of you. He sees this awful death at Calvary and he goes and he tells people. He tells people of this death and these events at Calvary. And surely the application of this point is clear. Friends, in light of what's happened this morning, in light of what we know to be true at Golgotha, what must we do as a church? We have to tell people. And we are poor. And aren't we cowardly at this? But we have to follow John's path here. We have to go from this morning out into London tonight, into this week coming, and we have to tell people. And isn't it the case that, that we must do that in light of the brevity of life? Because that is surely a theme in our congregation in recent days, isn't it? Aren't we aware of the sheer brevity of life? Aren't we aware that life is just but a breath that is passing? We as Christians have to use whatever time we have left to 
Tell people. Tell people of this death. Tell of the resurrection. Tell people of the gospel. What do we tell them? We tell them what can take away their sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what we have to tell people. And uh, I, I, I end this. Okay. I, I want to just illustrate what God does at the end of this portion of scripture. But I need your involvement in this. And I know it's late. I need you to help me with this. Imagine the scene just, just now. So we're in Symbotos without Aldersgate. This church, this room. Okay. You have to work with me. You have to imagine this. All of a sudden, just now, all of the lights go out. I mean, all the lights outside. I mean, all, everything. Can you imagine it? You, just now, imagine it. You are in complete and utter darkness. Can you imagine it? All of a sudden, one solitary beam of light comes down from above and it rests on you and you alone. Imagine it. That is what happens at the end of this portion of scripture. Because from just telling this account in a normal way, you know what John does? He turns. And in an instant, he speaks directly to you. That God, in a moment here, directly changes and he speaks to the reader. He speaks to you as you sit in some bottles. And what does he say? He says this. These things are written for you. Why? That you might believe. And so surely you see in that what is the one absolutely fundamental response there must be to the crucifixion of Jesus. What is it? You must believe. Friends, you must repent of your sins and believe in Christ and what he was achieving upon that cross. Do you believe that? If not, will you not tonight pin your hopes to Christ? Will you put your trust in Jesus? Because let me tell you, on that cross, he was achieving everything that is sufficient for your salvation. Will you not tonight respond to these things? Respond to the cross and respond by bowing in submission before the eternal Son of God and leaning on the everlasting arms of Christ Jesus. Let's pray.